Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. of whining about her story welcome to a new year but the same show this is a podcast where we talk about women's history that you probably haven't heard of but definitely should have have some wine swear a whole bunch and a whole bunch of other dumb shit i'm kelly i'm emily and i'm going to uh not alienate some of our listeners i'm gonna say hi to the enemies of whining about her story the people who love to hate us I knew or the, you'd come or the back. the first time listeners. You masochistic bitches. You know you hate this and yet you're here. Your hate fuels us. That's the energy I'm bringing into 2023. <laughs> Just the puns. Yep. <laughs> no. <laughs> you okay. agree. No. Shut the fuck up. We had a listener who was straight up like, no, your puns are the best. I'm like, okay, I'm going to throw that in Kelly's face next time she complains, which is always. <laughs> I've gotten a little bit better about them. Sometimes I throw in my own puns. I know. You're rubbing off on me. Yep. Rubbing one off on you. Yep. The way I like it. Yep. Oh, also sexy innuendo. Of course. Yeah. New year. Same bullshit. Here we are. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. No, we kind of, we jumped into the new year with a, an interview. So this is like our first actual episode. Traditional episode of 2020. This is our first one recorded in the new year. Yes. Yeah. No, we, um, I was in Miami, so we recorded everything uncharacteristically early. We were so on top of it. Yes. And then we got lazy. Yeah, okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> no we did not get lazy. <laughs> and then we had holidays and we had enough episodes to cover. So it's fine. That's we'll why we recorded ahead. It. It's fine. But you know what I think is interesting? It's like there are all these points throughout 2022 where it's like, oh, my God, we can't make this work like life and craziness and blah, blah, blah. But man, we made up for a year of not having sh- our shit together by really rocking it in December. Right? Of we did so well at the end We of were the year. so organized. I was reading books. Like, yeah. It was nuts. It was great. I shoveled so much. <laughs> Which allowed me to read so many books that I listened yeah. to them on Audible. Justin just did that before you got here. Shoveled. Oh. Snowblowed. The sidewalk? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, not the driveway. No. <laughs> You're like, excuse me, the driveway? Fuck that shit. No. Probably because I parked in the driveway. If I mm-hmm. parked on the street, I'm sure he would have done the driveway. All right. Well, Kelly has picked our first wine of 2023. Lay it on me. So it is, oh gosh, I picked a wine that I probably can't pronounce because it's French. Oh, I thought it was going to be Gaelic. I thought it was, I don't know what I thought it was. Not French, but on the very back it says product of France. Oh, those sneaky French. Uh, so it's Moulin de Gassac, a Gualhem wine. Wait, Moulin de Gaysac mm-hmm. or sure. Gaysac? G-A-S-S-A-C. I love, I love myself a good gay sock. Some of my favorite socks are my rainbow toe socks. Remember when everyone had a I pair had of those? those? I still have my pair I think of I, gay rainbow toe socks. I think I threw mine out because they were too small or they had a giant hole in the heel. Yeah, mine give One me power. Mine give me power. I, okay. I'll have to buy more. When I need to feel confident, I either wear my profanity socks, which are one of like two pairs of socks I have that have swear words on them, or I wear my gay rainbow toe socks. Oh, nice. So this is a blend of three different grapes. 
It says the Gilheim expresses the Guibert family. Oh gosh. The Guibert family. I probably like Guebert. I don't know how to pronounce French words. Guibert. Yeah, there you go. Um it okay, it expresses the philosophy of farming small hillside vineyard sites in harmony with Mother Nature, made from twenty five to fifty year old vines on the sunny and stony slopes of Le- Languedoc, this wine captures the essence of southern France. So that description reminds me of, you know, when you fill out a form online or submit something, and it's like, what's your age range? And now you and I are in the like, oh, yeah, 30 to 50. And it's yeah, like, exactly. shut like, oh, the God fuck. Damn it. Okay, that is way too wide of a range. with like 25 to 50 year old vines. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> no, that range is far too big. And diverse, and you can't lump us all together. (laughs) Stop it. I'm special. All right. Well, Kelly, I say we cheers to the new year. Cheer to the new year. Cheer. Let it be whiny. I expected more from a gay sock. To be perfectly honest. I don't know what I expected. It's not It's not. It doesn't say it's like a rosé or anything. So I'm like, I don't know if it's going to be sweet or what. Like, it's kind of bland. Yeah, it's like a blasé. Because it has a lot of the notes of a rosé, but it's so mellow and understated. It is a rosé. At the very, very bottom, it says (laughs) rosé wine. Under everything else. Almost four years and we're just learning to read the labels. usually they put it on the front. They do. (laughs) They do. It's a very pretty bottle, though. I probably also would have bought it because it's got like a Celtic knot on the front, which is why. I assume. Yeah, I assumed it would be Irish or I thought it was. I thought uh, the Gilhem or whatever it is was uh, Gaelic. Yeah, I could have seen that. I mean, not that we could pronounce it either way. I mean, it's not bad. It's not necessarily to my taste, but it is not bad. If you if you like a wine that's kind of chill and understated, where it's like, yeah, I'm a wine, but it's no big deal. Like, don't look at me. It's good. Mm. It also doesn't help that I have a little rum and coke with me, too, that I've been sipping on prior to recording. So my taste buds are, like, ready for a punch in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kelly, I do believe... You go first. I have the esteemed pleasure of talking about whining about our first lady of the year. Who are you whining about? So, I am covering someone who I am actually a little shocked we have not covered yet. And she's she's come up on my Google searches and she's been on my list for a while. And I've decided now it is finally the time for Amelia Bloomer. Oh, yeah. She's been on a few of my lists, but I was like, is she too well known? I decided she's not because I didn't know anything about her except one little factoid. So today we're going to meet Amelia Bloomer and you're going to realize pretty quickly why that name may sound familiar to you. So today we are traveling back to May 27th, 1818. It's a warmer time and an older time and probably a smellier time in Homer, New York. Lucy Jenks has just given birth to her seventh and final, thank God, child. A little girl named Amelia Jenks. Jenks? J-E-N-K-S. It's Jank, yo. 
It's a cheeky name. Like, yeah. No, I'm like, okay, I love the name Lucy. Love the name Amelia, but it's like, oh, Lucy Jenks. Yeah, like, ooh, like, mm, that's a, that's a. Could have changed that last name. It doesn't have a good rhythm to mm-hmm. it. It's okay because she becomes Amelia Bloomer, which, which is, is so much better. It sounds like a stage name. I it doesn't it. sound like a real name, and I'm in love with it. So Amelia joins her family as the youngest of five daughters and two sons. Her father, Anias. Yeah, that's how you say it. I was going to say Anassis. No, Anias is able to keep his family in modest comfort with his undefined, but, you know, not rolling in it profession. But a good education is not something Amelia is afforded. Maybe because she's a girl, maybe because they can't afford it. Maybe it's a little column A, column B. Though she only received a few years of formal education at 17 years old, Amelia became a school teacher. Someone who has barely been to school is the most qualified to teach school after all. And it was also one of the few jobs available for women at the time. Apparently she wasn't vibing with that though because she transitioned into another one of the few jobs available for women at the time. It became a live-in governess for a family in Seneca Falls, New York, which is on our list of places to go that we are going to go to at some point in the future. Some undefined point in the future. So Amelia became involved in the political, religious, and social activist circles of Seneca Falls. And like many women of the time, Amelia became active in the temperance movement, advocating for the abolition of liquor. Cheers, Amelia. Excuse me while I sip on my rum and coke in honor of you and your temperance. yeah. Ooh, that's liquor. So one of the reasons that women were so active in the temperance movement at the time was their lack of autonomy in the society. So like most things, we can blame the patriarchy. Men were lords of the public sphere, going to work, socializing, uh, political activism, etc., while women ruled the private sphere of the home. This allowed men to control the family's income, which could include blowing their wages on booze, leaving their families wanting and their wives with little to no recourse. It was also acceptable for a man to become drunk, belligerent, and abuse his family, or abuse his family without becoming drunk and belligerent, you know, just kind of like whatever your flavor of abuse is, uh, with the wife, again, having little to no recourse. So women who were primarily socializing through their church and other religious women's groups would be able to discuss these issues and identified alcohol as the common denominator rather than the patriarchy that forced them to stay dependent on alcoholic and abusive men. It is a lot easier to blame the alcohol than an entire society that is set up to fuck you. I get it. It's a very easy answer. Uh, and they felt that alcohol was the source of society's woes. Like, because you see it, you see a shitty guy stumbling around with more power than you in society. And he's wasting all of his money on booze, beating his wife. And you're like, man, he shouldn't be able to drink. That's making him a jerk. It's like, no, maybe he also sucks. Also, alcoholism is a serious problem. It is a disease. And, uh, I'm not judging alcoholics. This is just the situation of the time. So, while in Seneca Falls, Amelia met and later married Dexter Bloomer, who had, that is the best name so far in the story, Dexter Bloomer. Yeah, I like that one. 
Dexter also had his own newspaper. I think he was a law student. I must have accidentally deleted that. But he was a law student. He also had his own newspaper called the Seneca Falls County Courier. And he encouraged his politically active and opinionated 22-year-old bride to write for it. Go Dexter. Amelia used this column as an outlet for her social activism and a lot of her, like, teetotaling temperance stuff. Then... In 1848, Amelia attended a little thing called the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention. Ever heard of it? If you've listened to this podcast enough, you sure as hell have. This was the first organized convention around women's rights in the United States. And you can hear more about it in our first history happenings episode on Patreon, where you can subscribe for as little as $1 to get access to a bunch of fun bonus content. Some of which we're going to record after this because we're drinking. Yay! And that's when we record stuff. So, at the convention, the organizers presented the Declaration of Sentiments, which basically outlined their demands for women's equality. And it was like, it was based off of the Declaration of Independence and followed that format. And it's like, hey, but like, what if we include women? And when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to convince him to include women in the sequel. What? So, approximately 100 attendees signed the Declaration But Amelia Bloomer was actually not one of them. Nope. According to Wikipedia, the source of all God-given knowledge, (laughs) this was due to her, quote, deep connection with the Episcopal Church, end quote. I could find literally no other explanation. That's why she didn't sign it? Like, she was there and she didn't sign it because she was connected with the church. Yeah. That, That makes sense. So, it is possible that the declaration demanding equal authority and participation for women in the church could have rubbed Amelia's religious sensibilities the wrong way. It is also possible that it had nothing to do with the Episcopal church. She just didn't sign it. Who the fuck knows? The point is she did not disagree with the assertion of equality for women. She was like, Oh hell yeah, let's do this. I'm not going to like sign the doc. But let's do this, which I also, as someone who doesn't like to sign things, because I don't read the things I'm signing, I'm just like, I'm just not going to sign it. It's fine. I get that. So the convention served as the inspiration for her very own publication. And in 1849, Amelia established her own newspaper dedicated to women called The Lily. Cute. So cute. So the Lily served as a vehicle for Amelia to further the temperance movement. However, there was such a high demand for the biweekly newspaper that she expanded it to cover additional topics, including support for the women's rights movement. The Lily grew to have a circulation of 4,000, which is all the more impressive when you realize that after the first year of its publication, Amelia wrote, edited, and published the Lily all on her own. So I th- so she had like met some women at the convention and they all went in on this newspaper together, but like they had other stuff going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like starting a podcast. Lives. Like there used to be five of us. <laughs> now the, there's two. Now there's only two of us. <laughs> Everyone who's been listening to the beginning is like, wait, what? No, no, no. They're, they're published were, episodes. Yeah, no, there, there were never, never five. No. You know, I just expertly edited them out of everything. <laughs> I'm kidding. So it only ever sounded like two of us. Yep. Um, But she's like, I have to keep this going. I feel like it's my responsibility, especially because so many people were getting a lot out of it. She's like, I need to keep doing it. So it would become a model for future women's suffrage publications. Uh, And this also made her the first woman to own, operate, and edit a news publication for women. 
Apparently no one had tapped that market yet. Like, hey, women, they read shit. They want to read things that apply to them. And everyone's like, but women can't read. We don't educate them. So she said of the lily, quote, it was a needed instrument to spread abroad the truth of a new gospel to woman, and I could not withhold my hand to stay the work I had begun. I saw not the end from the beginning and dreamed where to my propositions to society would lead me. She's a writer. She's a writer. (laughs) So bonus factoid that I couldn't like really figure out how to put anywhere else. Uh, Amelia. Right here, right now. Right here, right. There's no wrong place for a bonus factoid. It is the opposite of an unsolicited dick pic. It is always solicited, is always welcome, is always appropriate. Solicited bonus facts. Solicited bonus facts. So Amelia Bloomer had befriended one of the chief organizers of the Seneca Falls Convention, Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, uh, or Katie, I, it's C-A-D-D-Y, I always call her Caddy because I imagine her being kind of like, Row. That's my history headcanon for her. Uh, And Amelia was the person who introduced Elizabeth Caddy Stanton to Susan B. fucking Anthony. The B stands for boss, who would become longtime suffrage partners. So like that was like a really huge partnership. She introduced these two historical heavyweights yeah. of the early women's rights movement in the United States. That's amazing. Go she Amelia. did more than LinkedIn could ever hope to do. <laughs> <laughs> and she got more recognition for it, which I'll get into towards the end. So one of the issues Amelia tackled in the Lily was fashion. Like all all femme publications. We talk about fashion. We love it. Particularly, though, in her case, the bullshit dress standards for women. Women were expected to wear bulky layers of restrictive clothing that were designed to preserve their future rather than to allow them to exist as a human being who moves and breathes and generally lives. Yeah. You know. (laughs) She wrote, quote, The costume for women should be suited to her wants and necessities. I should conduce that once to her health, comfort, and usefulness. And while it should not fail also to conduce her personal adornment, it should make that end of secondary importance. She like, hey, you should be comfortable and be able to do your stuff and look like a snack. But be comfortable first. Don't sacrifice your snackness for your comfort. Right. And this is probably why when her bestie, Elizabeth Caddy Stanton's cousin, Elizabeth Smith Miller. Okay. Elizabeth, have, popular name. Okay. So we have, I'm going to call her Libby Smith. Libby Smith is Elizabeth Caddy Stanton's cousin. Okay. Libby Smith developed a new fashion trend and showed it to our girl, Caddy Stanton. And Caddy Stanton immediately, immediately thought of Amelia. Amelia <laughs> thought like, of Amelia. I know this. <laughs> yes. So the fashion trend in question was modeled after Middle Eastern and Asian fashions. Include a mid-length tunic with baggy pants cinched around the ankles beneath it. So kind of like the hammer pants. And then like a tunic over it. That was then like cinched around the waist to give that dress poof look. Okay. But yep. you're still wearing pants. Yes. And they're comfy. Can we bring these back, please? please? The illustrations of them, I'm like, I want to wear that. <laughs> and there's nothing stopping me except my own insecurities. So 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton, wearing this new outfit, visited Amelia, who was like, yes, bitch, let's get this. It embodied everything that she had been preaching, an outfit that was functional, but still like feminine and virtuous and looked cute. Like you can be comfy and still feel cute. Amelia, who was becoming an old-timey influencer, began to promote the fashion in The Lily, which is what her Instagram page would be called today, and she would wear it out in public. Heck yeah. Yeah. Amelia's publications about the outfit were picked up by the New York Tribune, and more and more women began to adopt the outfit, outfit, which became known as the Bloomer Costume or bloomers after Amelia who had popularized it. That's why the name is familiar. We all know what bloomers are. Heck yeah. So like any women's fashion, bloomers were subjected to scrutiny and ridicule by the male-driven press. Amelia was even harassed on the street while wearing bloomers. And it's like, I don't know, if you're harassing a woman for what she's wearing, you're automatically a piece of shit. Like, you're in the wrong. Don't do it. Critics of bloomers or bloomerism basically they're like i'm sorry women making choices for themselves i don't think so claim that women wearing anything resembling pants usurped male authority jesus christ this is also known as fragile masculinity where it's like really me wearing pants somehow usurps your authority as someone who has a penis tell me how that works If anything, you should be wearing a dress. It must be so uncomfortable in there for you. Also, as a super fun lesson in semantics, there were newspapers that published drawings of the bloomer costume, calling it the oriental dress and praising it, but then denouncing the same outfit under the name bloomer. Because it wasn't about the clothes. It was about women making choices for themselves and taking control of their bodies and having autonomy. Yeah. And God fucking that's, damn it! That's not allowed, Emily. Ew! I'm, wait, what do you mean it's easier for a woman to run away from me? I hate that. So in the mid-19th century, the crinoline skirt became popular. And for those who don't know, the full-bide skirt was a super popular look that could only be achieved with layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of heavy, heavy heavy-ass skirts. Which is why bloomers were nice, because you didn't have to wear layers upon infinite layers of skirts. The crinoline, though, was a lightweight birdcage frame that could go under the skirt, allowing the puffed look without 20 billion layers of fabric. Women loved this because it allowed them more movement and freedom than the layers of skirts. Men hated it because it allowed women more movement and freedom than layers of skirts. Shocking. (laughs) Also, there were people who complained that like, oh, no, 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 like, if a woman's wearing crinoline, then I have to like move out of the way for her because she takes up more space. And I'm like, that was already the fashion dildo. Like, are you kidding me? Also, it was like, oh, what do you mean? I can't just like grope a woman because her skirt keeps me five feet away from her. What? Anyway, Amelia actually stopped wearing the eponymous bloomers in 1859 with the popularity of the crinoline, feeling that it also achieved all the virtues that she hoped for and likely brought her less abuse, you know, for existing and wearing clothes. In 1854, Amelia and her husband Dexter moved to Council Bluffs, Iowa. What's up, Iowa? How you doing? (laughs) You doing okay down there? You're doing all right there in the Midwest, our Midwest friends. How are the corn and the beans? How's the soy? 
Anyway, uh, as they traveled west, Amelia stopped in towns along the way to advocate for temperance because that is still like her number one shtick. She sold publication rights of the Lily to suffragist and writer Mary Thistlewaite Birdsall, which is an amazing name, of Richmond, Indiana, who kept the pu- publication going until 1859. So she did try to keep it going after she moved west, but it was just, it was getting to be too hard. But she didn't want to just die, so she sold it to someone else who was a badass in their own right. So in Iowa, Amelia continued her advocacy for women's rights and temperance. Excuse me while I take another drink for you, Amelia. Oh, the patriarchy doesn't want me a drink, so I must. She served as the president of the Iowa Suffrage Association from 1871 to 1873. And during the American Civil War, founded the Soldiers' Aid Society of Council Bluffs to support Union soldiers. So she's kind of like a social activist in a lot of arenas. Though Amelia was a fierce advocate for women's rights, her dedication to temperance clashed with other women's rights activists. Like me. <laughs> um, despite these disagreements, though, Amelia continued to advocate for gender equality. She's basically like, hey, we don't agree on this, but I'm not going to, like, sink the women's rights ship over it. You know, she's like, hey, we're, we're, we still want the same thing when it comes to gender equality, so I'm not going to be a dick about it, which I appreciate. Yeah. On December 30th, 1894, Amelia Bloomer died in Council Bluffs, Iowa at 76 years old and was buried in Fairview Cemetery. We could probably visit her grave. Iowa is not that far. I don't know about Council Bluffs in particular, but Iowa is not far. Like a she. Well, undoubtedly, Amelia's most well-known legacy is the Bloomers. She is also honored as one of the early leaders of the women's suffrage movement. Her introduction of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony is commemorated with a statue called When Anthony Met Stanton. You gotta love a statue that tells you what it's all about. Uh, the statue is in Seneca Falls, New York, uh, which shows Amelia introducing the two women. So it's the three of them together, and Amelia's like in between them, looking at them like, power couple, power. Like she's like, I ship this. <laughs> From 2002, I almost said 2022. Uh, 2002, so long ago. To 2020, the American Library Association published a yearly Amelia Bloomer list of feminist books for young readers. Now, before you get worried that they stopped publishing this in 2020, they didn't. It is still published, but now it's under the the name Rise, a female book project. And the reason for this name change, not only is it just like more inclusive and descriptive of what the fuck it actually is, um, is that despite her platform as a publisher and social reformer, Amelia Bloomer would not speak out against the fugitive slave law of 1850, which made it legal for enslaved people that had escaped to free Northern states to be recaptured and returned to slave owners. It also opened up a lot of room for like people to just kidnap black people and put them in slavery because there was no recourse. It was bad. And even though she's active in all these different areas, like, and I couldn't find if she was like, well, I don't see a problem with it. Or if she just never actively denounced it. But basically, yeah. they're like, we kind of want a more 
inclusive title because that is also a very problematic thing. And I want to be very clear. They are not canceling Amelia Bloomer or saying that we shouldn't talk about her or that she's like a bad person. They are renaming a list to be more inclusive to everyone and acknowledging the problematic parts of Amelia. And I appreciate that because we get into this pattern of venerating people from the past and that veneration doesn't allow us room to look at the negative parts of them. And they all have it. They all have it. So I appreciate that. Also, if I hear the Amelia Bloomer list, I'm like, oh, are they like the most comfortable pants? Obviously. But there's like rise of feminist book, like book list. I know exactly what that is. Thank you. That's so Googleable. Exactly. In 1995, Amelia's home in Seneca Falls, aptly named the Amelia Bloomer House, again, love shit that just tells you what it is, was added to the National Register of Historic Places. So we should definitely go see it. Let me go to Seneca Falls at some point in the future. Yes. And finally, and unsurprisingly, she was also inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls. And that is the story of Amelia Bloomer. The namesake of the Bloomers. Even though she did not invent them. She didn't even discover them. It was like she was like twice removed, but she popularized them. But someone was like, ooh, this person will like these. And then she wore them in public and people were like, oh, clearly this is who invented them. Well, and she was she made she made them popular. You know, she was kind of like an influencer in her own way. You know, Victorian influencer. Yeah. 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 All you need to do is wear shit around and make people talk about you. I mean, she kind of had everything. She had all the groundwork laid. And it's funny, though, because that is probably what she's most well known for. Yeah. But not maybe what she should be most well known for. No, not at all. But it is what it is, I Mm -hmm. guess. There's a lot in a name. It's like it's like when we call things by their brand name. Kleenex, Band-Aid. Kleenex was the one I was going to say. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 they're tissues and they're adhesive bandage strips. Facial tissues. Facial tissues or whatever, but we don't call them that. Q-tips? I'm pretty sure that's a brand name. What? Okay, what do you actually call a Q-tip? A cotton swab. Cotton cotton swabs. Cotton swabs, yes. I'm like, I don't actually know the real names for these things. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, no, you see something that looks like a fruit roll-up, but isn't branded as a fruit roll-up. It's still a fruit roll-up. Marketing is everything. No. Yes. I mean, you can't tell me no. no. 1,000% is like... That's, and that's what you do when you create a product. You, you have a name catchy enough that that's all people are going to think of when they look at that product. Or you just put a lowercase letter in front of it. <laughs> Shout out to my early aughts babies who grew up with the I everything. Yep. Including I fucking Carly. Like that was such a trope. They it named was. shows after it. Yeah. Oh I my mean, God. That's why in addition to like being millennials there, it's also known as like the... I think it's like the I something generation or something. There is another term for it that basically, yeah, makes fun of the fact that. Oh, the I want to get off this ride generation. <laughs> I don't want to be part of this generation generation. Oh, the I'm super depressed generation. Yeah. The that one. I need to take my meds. I think it's actually just the I generation. The I generation. 
Because they say we're incredibly self-centered. You know what? People used to pay oodles and oodles of money to have people paint larger than life-size portraits of them. Like super detailed portraits of them. Go fuck yourself. We're all a little obsessed with ourselves. Here's the thing. You just also need to care about other people. I'm not going to tell you how much you should care about yourself versus other people because honest to God, that answer is a little different for everyone, but you need to still care about other people. Yep. And be conscious that you are not the only person. Yeah. You are not, you are not moving through. You are not the sun. A space that was just like where everyone is a prop for you. Right. Exactly. God, I, I, I've been bitching about this for a week. Uh, when I was in Miami, I went to this mansion. It was oh. it was really cool. It was really gorgeous. But my God, it was just crawling with like Instagram gals or like influencers who are taking up all these big chunks of space to take like photo after photo after photo. And they were running around. They had like props and like mm. all. It was it was actually really nuts. There was one person there who was actually getting her photos taken for a quinceanera. That I totally get. But just like people are like, no, and now I put this on and you take this and then I put this on. And I'm like, what are who is this for? What what is happening? And do you need to like take up this entire walkway to pose? Because right. other people are trying to move through the space, like, please. This is a walkway, not your yeah. personal studio. Exactly. Go fuck yourself. It was insane. I was I was like, oh my God, is this what people talk about when they talk about our generation? Because this does not represent me. <laughs> Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash herstory. So Kelly, who am I whining about? about? Who are you whining about today? I am going to whine about Sonia Henny. Sonia Henny. Yep. Henny Penny? No. I mean, I guess if that's what you want to call her, Sonia sure. Sonia Henny Penny. <laughs> New name. I, I love to rename the women that we cover. Right. <laughs> I love to give them fun little nicknames. Henny Penny. Henny Penny. Yeah. So, I'm going to call her Sonia. All right. Uh, so Sonia was born in 1912 in what was Christiania, which is now Oslo, Norway. Okay. Norwegian. Um, she was the only daughter of Wilhelm Henny who was a Norwegian furrier and his wife, Selma. 
Um, in addition to the income from the fur business, which was actually quite lucrative, both of her parents also had inherited wealth. So they were, she came from a very well-off family. And, and she was always super warm because she was just constantly buried in fur. <laughs> All the fur. Okay, here's the thing. I, I don't wear real fur. I do not advocate it. Mm. I Here's the thing, though. I understand that it was needed for a time and it was important because you need to stay warm. Yep. And Otherwise can I just say, die. can I just say, it sounds like the most cozy thing. Like, I'm just going to curl up on under this, like, blanket of furs. Yeah. So Which she, I now replicate with all of my synthetic yeah, blankets exactly. at home. <laughs> all the like microfiber or like very fuzzy blankets. Yeah, the asbestos blankets, <laughs> the fiberglass blankets. Yeah, no, thank you. The felt blankets that are so old they actually hurt my skin. <laughs> you need some new blankets, girl. No. So Wilhelm, Wilhelm had been, one time been a world cycling championship and the Henny children, because I said she's the only daughter, mm-hmm. they had sons. Um, all the children were encouraged to take up a variety of sports at a young age. So Sonia initially showed talent in skiing, but then would follow her older brother Leaf to take up figure skating. I love the name Leaf. Can I just <laughs> say it, it's one of those, it's like people want to come up with all these unique names and I'm like, they're out there and they're old. You don't need to spell your kid's name with an L-E-I-G-H-X-Y-Z-W-P-D. Nope, it's just L-E-I-F. Just Leaf, man. Just leave me alone. Just leave. Um, Don't leave me like this. <laughs> so before she took a figure skating, she was also a nationally ranked tennis player as well as a skilled swimmer and equestrian. Like literally her parents had her do everything. I love she's like, oh no, I'm good at all the rich girl sports. Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, once Sonia began serious training as a figure skater, her formal schooling education ended. She would end up being educated by tutors and her dad would hire the best experts in the world, including Russian ballerinas, such as Tamara Karsavina, who's a famous Russian ballerina, to transform his daughter into a sporting celebrity. Mm. Um. So Sonia began skating when she was only six. At age 10, she would win the Norwegian National Figure Skating Championship. Excuse me while we all just feel inadequate exactly. for a moment. Um, when she was again? 11, she would place eighth in a field of eight. So she'd place last, but in the Winter Olympics. So she Jesus made it Christ. to the Olympics. How old was she? 11. Shut up. And this, this happened in... Ch- Chamon, France, which is why uh, when I saw it was from France, I'm like, I'm picking this wine. Okay, okay. So you know how the Olympics and like the Olympic Village is just this sex fueled, yeah. you know. Until you think about like, yeah, the gymnasts and the figure skaters that are all like, like wh- wh- 12. What happened? Yeah, when kids are competing in the Olympics, is there a separate village? Yeah, they have a separate little, is no, there just like, a building that they're like, this is the children, do not come here. This is the Olympics Kids Club. Exactly. Our mascots are a ginger, a black kid, and a kid in a wheelchair. Oh, What's up? Um, <laughs> so because she was trained by like Russian ballerinas and stuff, Sonia incorporated ballet into her skating. Um, as she had been taking ballet lessons since the age of five. Um, she was also coached by Swedish Olympic medalist Gillis Grossstrom, um, and she was able to transform what would be normally a predictable series of like kind of boring skating exercises into spectacular and popular exhibitions. Like people loved watching her skate because she yeah. did it differently. 
She was it, the, it, it's like a dance instead of, and now I'm going to spin again. Exactly. And I'm going to spin again. And now I'm going to jump while I'm spinning. She was also the first female figure skater to wear short skirts above the knee, which is like the common place now. See, that blows my mind. Like, what were they skating in? Like full length gowns? Pro- that or like maybe pants? I don't know. I doubt it. I'm going to have to even, look that up. Even now, like female ice skiers are not allowed to wear pants they've got a whole they've got all this bullshit yeah, they about wear, like pants. singlets it's real weird. yeah um she also had a great spinning ab- ability she would incorporate 19 different types of spins into her routines and could spin at nearly 80 revolutions so she was like jesus christ just quick she was i'd probably get super sick i don't understand how you can spin in different ways <laughs> I mean, because they do it where they, like, grab their foot or they, like, put their foot behind them or, like, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I guess. It's more, what do you do with your feet when you're spinning? I I get, I guess. I'm just imagining, like, me standing up right now and just spinning. I'm like, how many different ways could I make up to spin? Not yeah. many. <laughs> so she would then go on to win um, her first of what would end up being 10 consecutive world figure skating championships starting at age 14 in 1927. God. These were actually um, a little bit contested because she won three to two, in a three to two decision um, over the defending world championship, uh, who was from Austria. The controversy the controversy is three of the five judges, the ones that gave Sonia her first place, were all Norwegian, <laughs> while the other two were German and Austrian and gave the points to the other person. Oh. Favoritism. Um, doesn't matter. She would go on to win the first of her three Olympic gold medals the following year when she was 15 and become one of the youngest figure skating Olympic champions. She would go on to defend her Olympic title the next, the following two winter Olympics in 1932 and 1936. And like I said, she would defend her world title until 1936 as well. So the 10 preceding years, she would also win six consecutive European championships from 1931 to 1936. She's just like racking up the wins. Yeah, and she's five. <laughs> she's 15 now. Okay, still, she is an infant. Um, Actually, she would be, because she, she, if she was 15, the first Olympics. Wait, didn't you say she was 11? 15 when she won her first Olympics. Oh, okay, but she was 11 when she got into the Olympics yep. the first time. Yeah, and then four years later, so then to be 15, 19, and 23. So by the time she's done with the Olympics, it's she's 23. So that's where we're at. She's 23. Okay, now. she is a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> so she her three Olympic gold medals have not been matched by any lady single skater since then. And I checked. Oh, shit. Nor have her achievements such as being a 10-time consecutive world champion. Damn, Sonia. Right. Um, she has had some competition for um, the consecutive titles on like the European Championship. She shares it with Katarina Witt of Eastern Germany slash Germany. Um, but yeah, she's still holding on to most of her records. Um, towards the end of her career, she started getting challenged by younger skaters, obviously. However, as I said, she held off these competitors to win her third and final Olympics in 1936. 
You know, those 10-year-olds are so fucking arrogant, strutting out on the ice, pretending they're so much better than you. <laughs> right. Um, apparently, that Olympics was very, very um, contentious. Um, one of her, there were some controversial circumstances around her and Cecilia College, who came in a very close second that year Mm -hmm. um because for people who don't know the way they judge olympics olympic single skating is there's like a routine and then an open skate and then i think a different routine um and i guess like sonia at one point got really mad and then she tore up like a piece of paper and no one really knows like what the paper was but then when they drew for free skating sonia was last while her the competition had to perform second which, so it's like, did one of them end up in a place they shouldn't have been? Like, was that what the piece of paper was? Because the earlier you start seems is seen as like a disadvantage because you're so fresh in the judge's mind by the time they finish all of the competitors, they're not really going to remember you. Oh, I see. Even I though see. like, I'm like, maybe they used to score it differently because now they score it immediately after your routine. Yeah. And I would think going first would be a, like going sooner would be an advantage because then they haven't watched everyone else. Yeah. They're, but, they, they're not judging you in comparison to yeah. anyone else. Um, I mean, here's the thing, professional athletes throwing fits. Yeah. Like I understand this is incredibly competitive and you have to be kind oh, yeah. of a psycho to even want to do this, but it's like, come on, we're just be better, do better. Right. So during this comp- competitive career, she would travel all over working with foreign coaches, um, such as at home in Oslo. She would train with the Norwegian coaches. She also would train with the American Howard Nicholson when she went to London. And so, like, all of this stuff. She was also a really in-demand performer for, like, public figure skating mm-hmm. um, exhibitions in Europe and North America just because she was so popular. They, they're, they're just like, come skate, you know, like, come put on a little show. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where apparently like police often had to be called for crowd control when she would show up places because she was that well known. Jeez. Um, ooh, my notes just went all the way back to the first page. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Like, that's so stupid. Oh, my God. So Kelly is being gaslit by her computer right now. Um, apparently it was an open secret in the skating industry at the time that even though she was still considered like an amateur not like not really, but kind of. Um, her dad would demand uh, expense money for his daughter's skating experiences because both parents had given up their their own pursuits to um, accompany their daughter on her travels and act oh, as her managers. Yeah, even though they both came from money, so I'm sure they had enough money. But I'm yeah, you know. it, it's kind of like a the show kid thing. Uh, yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, Sonia is credited as being like the first female skater to adopt the short skirt but she is also kind of credited with like the really pretty white boot skates skaters wear because she has started doing that and then as well as a lot of people say she's the reason now that yeah skating routines are much more like dance focused than they used to be I was gonna say everything that you've described I'm like yeah that's just ice skating like that's just what you see yeah, the a lot of articles talk about how innov- like at the time her skating technique was really innovative and glamorous and it it really just transformed the sport permanently and then that's why it's it has continued to be in the Olympics. 
is because it got transformed into this like beautiful showmanship thing, you know. Because an 11 year old. Yep. At Olympic Kids Club. Was I got like, trained by Russian ballet dancers. Was like, no, I want it to be pretty and we're going to do it this way. And I want to wear my white boots. And they're like, no, Sonia, Sonia, you have to wear your like skin color. No, I want my white boot. And she threw a fucking Although tantrum. And then they're like, fine, I don't have the energy to fight you. I've noticed this last year. They now some girls wear like the tights or like the skin color tights over their skates now. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, have them not be white anymore. But I'm saying, yeah. like, it's become more common. Like it used to be, you'd always see the white skates, and now it's kind of like going back to. Yeah, they're. It changes just depending on the skater and where they come. I've noticed what country they come from sometimes affects like what they wear. Also, just what the rules are. You know what you can get away with, what you can push. Right. There was um. Oh my god, I wish I could remember her name right now. But there was an ice skater who. Oh God, she was a black ice skater and she was like really buff. Like she was incredibly mm-hmm. strong and she would do these flips in the air that were That's actually impressive. illegal because they're so hard and so dangerous. And she's like, no, nah, I'm gonna do it. And she, it, it, she's like one of those people, like she's so good and it's truly shocking. More people do, like myself do not know her name. And Kelly, you keep talking while I look her name up. Okay. So she decided to, after her third Olympic win, she decided to turn her ice skating into a professional career. That is so like a weird thing because, (laughs) because doing Olympic competitions is viewed as like competitive ice skating, not professional ice skating. It's so weird. No, I love it. It's like, oh no, no, no. I've only like won the Olympics a bunch of times. Now I'm going to be pro. Right. So she started touring Europe and the Americas as star as star as of a show called Hollywood on ice review. Um, and she would do this for a number of years. So everything I'm going to talk about coming up, she was still doing the ice shows while she was doing this other stuff. Really quick. Surya Bonnelly. Hmm. She is the only ice skater to land a backflip on one blade so she did a backflip and then landed on a single blade That's on ice. Intense. She performed it at the 1998 Winter Olympi- Olympics in Nagano, Japan. And I don't think like, I might actually have to cover her because I, I saw a video on it and I was like, wait, I'm sorry. She did something that no one thought was possible and they were mad about it. Go fuck yourselves. I like it. Yeah. Further reading for all of you. Right. So following particularly the success of her ice show in Los Angeles, um, this really launched her into a film career. Yay. Oh, yeah. No, of course. She got signed uh, into a long-term contract with 20th Century Fox, and it made her one of the highest paid actresses of the time. Uh, she Her first film was One in a Million, um, and it was a huge success and so she she became an increasingly demanding demanded actress um and she was able to she was so popular that she was able to insist on having total control of a a few skating numbers and some of the other films she was in such as second fiddle she then tried to break into musical comedy or break the musical comedy mold with an anti-nazi film uh wait she wait. She was in the anti-Nazi yes. film, so she was in a film but it that was, was a like, musical Fuck comedy. Oh, like springtime for I have no Hitler idea. and um, Germany. It's called Everything Happens at Night. I have no idea. God. It was made in 1939. <laughs> what the hell? 
Well, fuck Nazis. And then she also starred in a show called It's a Pleasure, which is a skating variation of an often told tale about an alcoholic star in decline helping a newcomer, you know, get better at a sport. And I'm like, yep, they, they still make those movies today. Um, that was her first and only film shot in Technicolor. Oh. But it did not do as well. And also uh, proved that she really wasn't very good at being a dramatic actor. <laughs> Yeah, being a good ice skater does not translate to acting. At least not dramatic acting. I um, mean, just like being a dramatic actor does not translate to ice skating. Right. Um, she did go on to star in more musical comedies. Apparently she did well in that. Um, and she by then, like, after she starred in a few more, she had really developed, like, a, a comedy flair. And these films were some of the top, like, grossing box office hits for 20, 20th Century Fox the years they were released. Mm-hmm. Across eight of her films, she she grossed over $100 million domestic. Jesus. Just in the US. Yeah. Um, at the height of her fame, she brought in as much as $2 million a year just for herself. So that's huge. Mm-hmm. She also had obviously a ton of endorsements and deals with skates, clothing, jewelry, dolls, branded merchandise. Basically she, she's considered probably one of the wealthiest self-made women of that time. Yeah. Wow. So now we're going to talk about some of her downsides. All right. Let's get into so, those blemishes. Yeah. So Sonia may or may not have had some connections with Adolf Hitler and other high-ranking Nazi officials. No! Um, And this was controversial both before, during, and after World War II. Um, So during her amateur skating career, she performed often in Germany, was a favorite of German audiences, and of Hitler personally. And as just as generally as a wealthy celebrity, she she moved in those same social circles as royalty and heads of state. And had actually made Hitler's acquaintance just because he was a head of state before he kind of went psycho. Well, and she I mean, he this, was psycho anyways, but. Well, she's like, isn't she like this pretty blonde girl too? Like yeah. who's, you know, good at sports. Very and, traditional, like Norwegian looking person. Yeah. So I'm sure he just loved all of that. Um. So through the years and her shows and art exhibits and it would, I mean, she would meet a number of people that were significantly less controversial, but just as powerful as Hitler, mm-hmm. such as Princess Margaret, the Countess of Snowden, Gustav the Sixth, Adolf of Sweden. Literally, that's his name. Yep. Not that Adolf. Nope. Different one. <laughs> um, and she would also meet the crown prince of Norway and his wife during mm-hmm. some of her touring. But basically, the controversy first appeared when supposedly she gave him the Hitler the Nazi salute during the Olympic Games, which was happening in Germany. Oh, the Munich Olympics? Um, I think they were in Berlin. Or Berlin? Shit, yeah. what am I thinking of? I think you might be thinking of the Summer Olympics. Because okay. it, it also happened to the Summer Olympics. I, I was going to say, that was the one where the, the black uh, relay racers yep, like, be Summer Olympics. kicked their fucking ass. And he was all pissed because yep. he's a racist dick. Um, so the, And then after the games, she was offered lunch with like Hitler and other dignitaries. And she accepted it. And then mm-hmm. he... He presented her, and this is 1936, so this is pre-World War II still. Yeah. Um, but he presented her with, like, an autographed photo of himself because, you know, that's something people do. 
because people were just as vain then as they right, are exactly. now. <laughs> uh, and then she was strongly denounced in Norway after this happened. Um, she kind of briefly talks about it in her biography that was um, written and t- kind of talks about how the 1936 Olympics weren't great because they're as you're, I think she said, she talks about how like you're entitled to a judge from your own country. Mm-hmm which I didn't know. Oh yeah. I didn't know that either. Um, and there was no, no Norwegian judges on the panel. So like she, even though she won, so you'd think she wouldn't contest it, but basically like she won the gold medal. And when she, she talks about how, when her and the second, so the silver medalist and the bronze medalist, so the three of them, like obviously you get paraded in front of like people. Yeah. And so they passed Hitler and none of them gave the Nazi salute. So she talks about it and she's like, I didn't. So and I, I haven't, I didn't look a ton into it. I'm like, people say she did, but basically she's like, no, like when, when we saw them, Oh no, the figure skating championships that year took place in Berlin. The uh, Olympics took place in Garmisch Partikirchen. No idea what that is. Cool. <laughs> Yay, it's someplace in Germany. Nicknamed Gapa. Gapa. <laughs> Not joking. Gapa. Uh, it's apparently near the Austrian border. Okay. Um, but basically she talks about it and she's like, no, I like didn't like I, I had met him before, but I didn't like support Hitler, is basically kind of how what she said. Um, and then dur- uh, but people also called out that during the occupation of Norway by Nazi Germany, German troops um, found that the autographed photo on display in the the Henny family home. Um, and so like none of their properties got destroyed. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean they supported him. That could just be like, hey, if they think we support him, they're not going to like burn down our shit. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. So after still not a great move after the horrors of, you know, World War Two and especially what the Nazis were doing really came out in full force. There was a I mean, there was just such international outrage around everything that happened. And so there was a lot of like, oh, you weren't actively I want this dude dead. Therefore you're a, and and here, and here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not making excuses. I'm not either. We actually just got done reading a book that discusses that kind of phenomena where they're they're, They have to go back and judge, you know, decades of people's lives to be like, where do you land? Were you pro or anti? And there wasn't a, there's not a fine line. Well, and, and there wasn't allowed to be a, I don't know. I was just trying to like live my life. I wasn't trying to, I was trying to survive. Yeah. So, um, Honestly, can I just say, like, it sounds like there are a lot of people I would get mad at before her. Oh, yeah. Because, what, is she, like, 12? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, by 1940, so by the time the war actually, like, really was coming out. In full swing. Um, Sonia actually was be, had become a naturalized citizen of the United States by 1940. That apparently happened to many Hollywood stars. Um, and like many Hollywood stars, she was supportive of the U.S. war efforts. She would do USO shows and other similar activities. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, she invited the boys from Little Norway. Little Norway? Yeah, apparently that's a thing. I love that. Um, I want to go to Little Norway. Which I think was a train. A, yeah, it was a training camp. It was an RNAF training camp, which is an Air Force training camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they he they would she would invite them to her ice shows and give mechanics um, 
or she gave a plane to them as well as a ton of money for, like for education. Um, she was initially a little bit reluctant before the U.S. entered the war, which a lot of people never forgave her for. Mm-hmm. And she was condemned by many Norwegians and Norwegian Americans because of that. Um, however, after Pearl Harbor, a lot of that propaganda stopped because they're like, okay, no, she is like doing her part. Like, and like basically once she became a U.S. citizen and was probably more safe. Yeah. You know, people were like, oh, okay. Like, well, they, they still were like, mm, you didn't make the best decisions and mm, you kind of were a little bit closer with Hitler than people would like, but I, maybe I, you're not as bad as everyone's saying. I get that. But I feel like you can look at this as one of two ways, you know, either she's genuine or she's not. So either she was genuinely like kind of like, oh, I guess I'll go to lunch with the ruler of this country where I just won this big competition because who doesn't? And then when she's like, ooh, no, they're like fucking everyone up. I'm genuinely helping the United States for the war effort. Or she's like, I don't know. I'm going to just do whatever works best. You know, it's like, ah, no, I guess I'll go to lunch with this guy. Or I guess I'll, you know, just pretend to support the United. You know, it's one of those things where it's like you, there's a lot of evidence to argue it either way, but it's almost like there's so much either way. Right. You can't, it just sounds like she's a person who's trying to figure it out as it's all happening. Right. <laughs> like a lot of other people. Right. So after the war, she was super mindful that many of her countrymen considered her to be a quisling, which is a traitor. It's a, oh. the um, Norwegian word for traitor. Yeah. Um, however, sh- she would make a triumphant return to Norway with her uh, a tour of holiday on ice in both 1953 and 1955, both of which the royal family of Norway would attend. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would actually even go on to attend her funeral later when she would die. Um I mean, I, I, I get it. You know, you're, you're angry and you want to, and here's the thing. I can kind of translate to how I feel now. Right. You know, where people are like, well, it's not that bad or that person's not that. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Did you hear what they said? Or did you see what they did? And it's like, how are you not seeing this? How are you not upset and disgusted? Right. And it's hard to let go of those feelings. Um, so Sonia would marry a Norwegian shipping magnate later in life called Niels Onstad. It was actually her third marriage, but the other two, like they lasted six years and seven years respectively, but I like couldn't find a ton on the marriage. Inconsequential. And, well, and like she was traveling and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But so she married a shipping magnate, Niels Onstad, um, in 1956 when she retired um, and they would settle in Oslo and start accumulating a large collection of modern art. And that would um, form the basis for the Henny Onsted Art Center, which would open in Oslo. Oh, yeah. I love that. So I thought that was cute. Like that that's what she did with like her later life, like collect art and then give it away. Um, I, I love the, the all the way through. She's just like rich girl stuff. Oh, <laughs> she was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the oh. mid 1960s and would die of the disease at age 57 on an ambulance plane from Paris to Oslo. Oh my God. And she is buried with, with her husband, her last husband in Oslo on the hilltop overlooking her art center. Oh Yeah. Um, what I, so side facts or extra facts, uh, for a while, 
uh, Sonia's uh, picture adorned the tail of the Boeing 737-300 of the Norwegian Airlines. Um, it was eventually f- not her picture, but the plane was phased out. Mm-hmm. And then her picture was placed on the tail of the Boeing 737-800, which was of the same airline. So yeah. Different plane, same airline. And then in 2013, she was added to the Norwegian Air Shuttle's Boeing 787 Dreamliner. So that's like the big, like two story yeah wait wait i'm sorry they have two story planes yeah there's not very many of them what how does that work um but apparently that that's one of um norwegian air shuttles like things is having portraits of famous dead norwegians on the tail of its aircraft (laughs) famous dead norwegians sorry they deceased famous they can get away all right okay We've covered women who have had their faces on a lot of things. I think yeah, this I is think the we've first never covered woman with planes. Had her face on a plane. Yeah, let like, alone included it. I was like, this is interesting. A double decker plane. At least I think that's what the dream Man's is. Man's arrogance. My goodness. Um, and then she, in 2012, the Post in Norge, or the Norwegian Postal Service, mm-hmm. issued two stamps featuring so- uh, Sonia. Of so. course. Naturally. For all our herstory stamp collectors out there hell yeah um yeah that's that's sonia henning oh henny penny that was a really cool story and i i I still can't get over that well i'm glad that you covered even the the controversial parts about her okay the dream the dreamliner is not the double decker it is super wide though oh it's thick with if it's 242 passengers thick with two c's now i need to know hold on let me google this uh airplane (laughs) with two levels i hope this is something kelly just made up okay no it's not so she was the last one she was was the 787 dreamliner by boeing the it's the boeing 747 or the airbus a380 is their double-decker design. That is... You can pack in over 600 passengers. That's horrifying to me. (laughs) I don't think I would ever get on that airplane. I didn't know what I was... Okay, so I googled Sonia Henny plane... And it's actually like a really cool yeah. illustration. I don't know what I was expecting. It's it's almost like a like um like it's, a hand drawn outline yeah, style. It, it actually it almost reminds me a little of like um old school comic book art a little bit. Some yeah, of it. Yeah, I really like it. Yeah, no, I that that's lovely. That's lovely. Yep. Well, thank you, Kelly, for sharing Sonia Henny with us. Yeah, like I don't know. I think I'm like deluding myself because I was definitely not alive when she was alive. But I'm like, that name sounds familiar. But I think there must have been like another figure skater that was named Sonia, like when we were growing up. Because like for some reason that like figure skating and the name Sonia just like resonates with me. Yeah. Well, what I think is interesting is like she's still a prominent figure in Norway, like to the point where she's on their planes and be- and she kind of i mean she revolutionized modern figure skating to be what we recognize as just figure skating today yeah i'm surprised i haven't heard of her before one the fact that she won three gold medals in singles skating and no one else's 
There is a man that has achieved it, but there's no other female that has yeah. achieved it. And even for couples, the most ever one consecutively is two. Wow. I Googled all this shit. <laughs> Gilly's the Google master. Cause, well, because I read it and I was like, well, I don't want to like, just in case like the articles I was reading were out of date, because some of them, you know, like the most recent one was not all that recent because she died so long ago. Right. Um, and so I was like, oh, I just want to like fact check and make sure I'm not going to like say this. And then someone's like, well, um, actually. So like that, that was why I did a lot of Googling. 2023 is the year to keep your um actuallys to yourself. That's yes. going to be your New Year's resolution. So Kelly, my darling, what are you thankful for? What am I thankful for? What are you thankful for? Let's discuss that. Let's really dig in deep. Let's get elbow deep into your thankfulness cavity. <laughs> that, that was an awkward sentence. Um, that's a good question. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm thankful for a lot of things. Like I feel like this new year is starting off well. Things are going well at work. Things are going well at home. I don't know. I guess I'm just, I'm thankful for like a really good time celebrating coming into the new year. We had a good party. And then I'm just, I'm just thankful that, yeah, the year is starting off well. Not with that. Not with an impending global pandemic. Or an active global pandemic. So the 2023 (laughs) starting off well, that's what we're going to go with. All right. It's going to tentatively sneak into the new year. Like, all right, yeah. everything's looking just, we're good just not, here. We're just not going to skate. We're so far, slow so movements. Good. Not yeah. spooking anything. How about you? What are you thankful for? Um, I am thankful because 2022 was actually a pretty good year for me all in all. It was a lot, but there was a lot of good. And I'm feeling kind of reinvigorated. Like, hey, it's yeah. a new year. And I started engaging in a lot of healthier habits and started doing a lot of things I've been wanting to do last year. And I'm just kind of excited to keep doing that and, you know, like rev it up a bit. Vroom, vroom, motherfuckers. Heck yeah. Vroom, vroom into 2023. Look at me. I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another or perhaps your first episode of Whining About Her Street. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Her Street, Instagram at WAHPod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningabouthersteet.com where you can find our merch and buy some. You can find links to anywhere you want to listen to us. And you can find a link to our Patreon where, as Emily mentioned earlier, you can donate for as little as $1 and get some bonus content. Bonus. And please rate us five stars wherever you listen because it makes us all warm and fuzzy inside. Make that your New Year's resolution to support small independent podcasts by people named Emily and Kelly. In ways that are not monetarily or monetarily if you feel like it. Yeah, no, I mean, just whatever feels right for you. It you always want, feels right for you us. You want to peel open that wallet and stick your finger inside and like pull out a dollar? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We would it's love okay. You. I mean, we you love know, you anyways. You know it feels good. <laughs> All right. Well, now that I have sexually harassed your ear holes, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Her Street. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.